invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are walking with the Lord Jesus and his disciples, and right now we are gathered uh, at the Mount, uh, hearing Jesus give us the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have heard him pronounce the uh, ninefold blessing on citizens of the kingdom, that is, those who have come to uh, faith in him, uh, looking to him as the as the King, the Savior, and Lord, there's great blessing. We've heard in verses 13 to 16 that uh, we have a calling in this world. Our attitude to this world is that we're here for blessing. We're here to be salt. Uh, we're here to be light as we reflect the light of Christ as he has shone his light into our hearts. That light goes out from us as well to the world around us. And then last time we read about uh, Jesus and him teaching us about his relationship uh, to the Scripture, to the Old Testament and specifically to the law uh, and to the prophets and him beginning to tell us what true righteousness is all about. And it's not found in the Pharisees. It's not found in the scribes. Uh, and so as we go on here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're going to have the, the words of Jesus himself explaining to us uh, what his will is for our life, what the law of God is actually uh, all about. He is going to reveal it to us uh, and make it known. And so we pick up the reading at Matthew chapter 5. These are the words of Jesus, Matthew five twenty-one uh, through 26. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray for his help uh, as we need his help uh, to understand it, apply it to our own lives and go forth then in this week to serve him. So let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we know that it is uh, easy in many ways for us to read uh, a passage of Scripture, but Lord, much harder for us to, uh, to understand it, uh, believe it, and take it to heart. For Lord, we know that this is the, this is the work of your Holy Spirit, to take the, uh, the Word that you have revealed to us, uh, and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, have it speak uh, into our own hearts tonight, whoever we are. And so, Lord, we do pray that uh, you would be pleased to work within us tonight, that uh, you would help me to preach this word faithfully, that whatever is not from you, that it would fall to the ground. But Lord, that for all of us, what is from you, uh, Lord, that these truths would find a home in our heart tonight as we go out to serve you in the week to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you have heard that it was said... This is going to be a common phrase, a common refrain that we hear uh, in the Sermon on the Mount from the lips of Jesus. You heard, you've heard uh, that it was 
said. This familiar phrase to us uh, comes to you in forms like this. You've heard that it was said, the, the pen is mightier than the sword. Or you've heard that it was said, the customer is always right. I heard that when I started work at Wendy's. Customer is always right. You've heard that it was said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You've heard that it was said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You've heard it said, you are what you eat. A watch pot never boils. The grass is always greener on the other side. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Slow and steady wins the race, and time heals all wounds. You've heard that it was said, but... There's more to the story, isn't there? All those things we've heard. It's not quite the whole truth, is it? Those things that we have heard, or at least we interpret them one way, uh, but then we realize there's, there's much more uh, to be said to what, we have, to what we have heard. Now, what Jesus does in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least for the good portion here of Matthew chapter 5, uh, he's going to use that phrase, you've heard that it was said, and that's how we're going to break up our our, uh, our study of this, of this chapter, uh, but he's going to do in this chapter exactly what he said he came to do. He's not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he has come to, uh, to fulfill them. And remember, one of the reasons or one of the understandings of that that we took from that passage was that part of Jesus fulfilling, not only certainly in his person, he will live in complete obedience to the law, he will fulfill what the prophets have said about the coming Messiah, Uh, But part of what fulfilling means is that he is certainly going to make uh, God's law known in all its depth uh, and its all its intensity for us. And it starts here with the sixth commandment. And uh, what Jesus is going to say to us, we know right off the bat here, is going to be in contrast to something. It's going to be in contrast to what uh, we have uh, heard. Now, notice Jesus does not say, Uh, You have read what is written. If he had said that, we might think Jesus is setting himself in opposition to the law of God. You know, if Jesus had said, you have read that it is written. Well, right away we would think, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus setting himself up against the law? Well, that wouldn't make any sense because he just told us in Matthew 5, 17 that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's come to fulfill them. And he doesn't say you've read what is written, but he says uh, you have heard that it was said. He's not setting himself in opposition to the law of God. Uh, instead, he is setting himself in opposition to, uh, to an incorrect understanding, an incorrect interpretation of the law by the scribes uh, and the Pharisees. And we're going to see that clearly uh, as we proceed. And the first stop in our understanding of the law of God, the will of God, Uh, is the sixth commandment. You shall not uh, murder. And the question is, of course, who is the murderer, according to Jesus? Who is the murderer? Uh, Now, murder, define murder, it is the unlawful taking of a human life. In the Bible, we know that Jesus, or the, the Lord in the Old Testament, established the death penalty, for instance, in Genesis 9. That if, by man you, uh, if man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, we are created in the image of God. And so anyone who, who dares to, to take a life created in that image by that, because life is so precious, they forfeit their own life. And God establishes that in Genesis 9. God also tells us in the Old Testament there are times when in his judgment, uh, that actually in his judgment he used his people in the book of Joshua uh, to, to, to wage war against the enemies of God. 
Uh, and that was good and pleasing and right in God's sight. And so this commandment we know from the Old Testament is not saying that uh, there is never a time when to take a life is not lawful, according to God, there is. Uh, but murder is the unlawful taking of human life. And as Jesus makes this commandment known to us, we need to note several tremendously important principles in understanding God's law, because in doing that, it will help us understand the gospel that much better. So the first thing is this, murder, according to Jesus, is committed in the heart uh, just as much uh, as with the hands. And the principle here that we're going to find out is that God uh, is much more holy than we think, and we, uh, we're not going to like this, and we uh, are much more sinful than we believe. This is a principle that Matthew 5 is going to teach us. God uh, is much more holy uh, than we think, and we uh, are much more sinful than we actually, in fact, believe. Now, we see that here as Jesus explains uh, that the holy God is not just concerned simply with purity of action, uh, but purity of heart. You have heard that it was said to those of old, says Jesus, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone uh, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, He, that's God, is a most pure and perfect being who sees faults and imperfections where man's eyes often see none. He reads, according to Scripture, God reads our inward motives. He notes our words and thoughts as well as our actions. He requireth truth in the inward parts, the Bible says. Oh, says Ryle, that men would consider this part of God's character more than they do. There would be no room for pride and self-righteousness and carelessness if they only saw God as he is. That is, that he is so holy, he's not just concerned, like we are often, with simply our external actions. But in fact, he, well, he, he knows our words, but he also is concerned about our inward, uh, inward thoughts. Words and thoughts. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, that's a, that's a heart, affection, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so there the Lord Jesus is speaking about not simply external actions, but our words, our speech, uh, and our inward affections. John Stott is helpful here. He's reflecting on, in, uh, reflecting on this, uh, this emphasis that Jesus has here on anyone who insults his brother Uh, That could be translated, whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now, you might understand why the ESV, instead of saying whoever says to his brother, Raka, translates that as whoever insults his brother. Now, why is that when the the Bible there actually uses this word, Raka? Because we don't know what Raka means. Uh, But John Stott says, says this about that word, Raka. It appears that Raka was an insult to a person's intelligence, calling him empty headed. And commentators vie with one another in proposing English parallels uh, like nitwit, uh, blockhead, numbskull, uh, or bonehead. Uh, this is what the Bible's saying. Jesus is saying, if anyone calls somebody bonehead, numbskull, um, and so the ESV simply lumps that all together as anyone who insults his brother. Those are all words of 
words of insult. Uh, and if anyone says to someone, you fool, uh, that's the Greek word more, from the word which we get moron, right? But in the scripture, a moron is a fool, but it's a very strong use of the word. It says, Stott, being applied in the Old Testament, a fool was someone who denied God's existence and as a result plunged into reckless evil doing. Uh, moron, fool. Somebody, uh, somebody you're, you're condemning someone as an evil doer. Stott says this, some uncertainty remains about the precise meaning of these two terms of abuse, but they were clearly derisive, insulting epithets. And so we don't know exactly what it means, but it wasn't nice. And uh, these kind of words, meant to hurt, uh, meant to abuse, meant to condemn others. So Jesus says, I'm concerned about that too. And I'm concerned about your inward affections. Here, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That has to do with our inward affections. Angry with his brother. Now, there too, we know that in the Bible, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Why? Uh, Well, because the Bible talks at several places about the anger of God or the wrath of God against sin. So if you're angry and I'm angry at sin, the presence of sin, the, uh, the doing of sin, especially my own, that's righteous. Oh, I need to be... Uh, Matt mentioned it tonight. We have to hate our sin. We've got to be angry at our, at our sin and, uh, and what it does because it is itself rebellion against God. So, so that's, that's a good anger. And, and we read from Ephesians 4 this morning, be angry and do not sin. So it's okay. It's good to be angry at unrighteousness, but it's so easy for us to sin in our anger. And so the Bible says, be angry uh, at sin, but, but don't sin yourself. Because that's, of course, our temptation. But, of course, what Jesus is talking about here is that anger within us that is actually a result of pride, hatred, malice, uh, and feelings of, uh, of revenge. If you have your Bible with you, if you turn over to uh, the book of Galatians, I just want to encourage us to remember how the Bible speaks about the, the effects of sin. And when we think about Galatians 5, of course, talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but it also talks about the, uh, the rotten fruit of my sinful flesh. And it's interesting when the Bible does that, it doesn't just talk about external manifestations of sin. Often the rotten fruit of sin is things going on in our heart. So Galatians 5.18 says this, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature are evident. Okay, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Now, these are, these are inside things. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, a lot of those things are external things, but a lot of those things that are rotten fruit of the sinful nature all have to do with our desires, our affections, and things within. Now, here's the thing that Jesus is saying. Uh, the holy God... Uh, sees all, uh, knows all, and is concerned about all, uh, even the inward, most inward thoughts and desires and passions of our heart. And that's, for instance, why Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God 
is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharp on both sides, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and so the Word of God pierces your heart when the Holy Spirit applies it, and the Bible says discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does according to Scripture. So when the sermon is preached or you're just reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit is present and at work, when you read the Bible, it doesn't just remain on the page. The Bible says it pierces into your heart and soul and it's discerning your thoughts and and the intentions of your heart. The Encyclopedia Britannica does not do that. Uh, Don Quixote the Cervantes, that doesn't do that for you when you read that book. But the Word of God uh, knows your thoughts. Isn't that amazing? And your desires. And that's because, of course, it's the Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking. And we feel it when we are, when we are convicted. Now, the reason this is so important is because many professing Christians, this teaching of Jesus is so important, because many profession, professing Christians may think, may think, And many non-Christians may think that they have kept God's law when they haven't. And they may think of God's law only in terms of addressing our outward actions. So, for instance, think of the man, uh, uh, the young man who comes to Jesus and says, um, uh, you know, what must I do to be saved? Remember in Matthew 19, and Jesus says, well, here's the commandments. And how, remember how the young man responds? I've kept them all since my birth. Huh? <laughs> what? And I think we're supposed to say that when we read that. Are you kidding? And, you know, that's in Matthew, where? That's in Matthew 19. So you've already read Matthew 5. So, you know, you've kept them? Really? In all their intensity and depth? No, you haven't. Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 there's no one good. There's no one who seeks God. No, no. The purpose, then, of Jesus is to undeceive, first of all, the self-righteous, and to encourage and spur on the believer. Because what it's saying here is this is, Jesus saying, listen, this is your God. This is what your God is concerned about. This is how deep spiritual transformation really goes. So Jesus is not taking issue with Moses, but with the interpreters of Moses. He's not taking issue with the Old Testament, but with those who have misinterpreted the Old Testament. He's not taking issue with the law of God, but with the understanding of that law taught by men. What was the problem? This is how it works. The Pharisees, in fact, were scaling down. Now, this this is counterintuitive, but the Pharisees were actually scaling down the demands of God's law and limiting it to external conformity. Kind of like when you were a child. Um, We all do it. We all did it as a child. Your parents give you something to do, uh, give you a command, or you got to do this or do that or the other thing. And uh, so you know the exact thing your parents tell you to do, and you do that and no further. You do it uh, to the letter of the law. You don't do it joyfully. You don't do it cheerfully. But you come back at the end of the day and say, but I, I did it. Uh, I did it exactly what you said. And then your parents might say, well, you, you know I didn't really, you know that I meant, you know, this. I say, but I, I did it according 
to what you said. Think about this. Why will imposing the reading of the Bible and demanding prayer in public government schools not change the nation? Why will putting up monuments to the Ten Commandments in every public square not change the nation? Well, because giving the impression to people that simple outward conformity to the commands of God is somehow pleasing to God while neglecting the fact that God demands love with all the heart, soul, and mind. That's deadly. That God is only concerned with an external conformity. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisee is looking to limit. Here's the thing. He's looking to limit his obedience to God. His body might say, I believe, but as we find out in Mark 7, his heart is far from God. The Pharisee wants to know the least he can do to please God. He does not ask, for instance, remember the psalmist at one point asked, when can I go and meet with God? Is there a worship service somewhere here? When can I go, says the psalmist, to meet with God? You know, maybe on vacation, it's a Sunday night, uh, driving through a city. All the churches are dark. And the Christian's saying to himself, is there anywhere here where I can go and meet with God and worship Him to end this uh, Lord's day? Um, No, no, instead the Pharisee is asking, uh, what's the least amount of times I can come to worship without uh, the elders giving me a phone call? You know, I'm a member of the church. And I know i got to go to church. You know, what's the, what's the least amount of times I can show my face at Sovereign Grace and still be considered a member? Now, no one would say that. But it's in the heart. That's the heart of the Pharisee. I think it was Ligon Duncan who tells the story, PCA pastor in, in Mississippi, tells the story of W.C. Fields. Uh, he was a famous comedian Uh, early part of the 20th century here in America. He was a notoriously immoral man. One evening, a friend apparently of his caught W.C. Fields in a hotel room reading a Gideon Bible. And his friend apparently was horrified knowing who W.C. Fields was. And he said to him, W.C., what are you doing reading that Bible? And Fields responded, looking for loopholes. Probably apocryphal story. (laughs) But that is exactly, according to Jesus, that is the Pharisee. It is not about loving and pleasing the Father from the heart in all things. It's about conforming to a standard to the exact measure required and no further in order to earn a reward and justify myself before God. God, I did it. And Jesus is saying, Oh, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. The reason this is so important is that uh, a sister denomination of ours uh, has been having a lot of discussion in the last couple of years about an organization called uh, Revoice. You may have heard about this. You may have read about this online. It's not from this denomination, but a lot of the folks in our sister denomination, the PCA, have been affected by this organization. You say, well, what does that matter? What's that? Well, Revoice is a group of people who are saying that you should not hesitate 
You should not feel shamed or anything like that to identify yourself as, for instance, a gay Christian. You shouldn't have any kind of hesitancy to do that. Certainly not acting out your gay identity in overt homosexual acts, uh, but those homosexual desires themselves are God-given. And they're not sinful in themselves. The problem, of course, is James tells us, where does, where does sin come from? Well, James says this, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed, the Bible says, by his own desire. And when then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That sinful desire within gives birth to the actual committing of sin outside of us. But it begins with a sinful desire within. And that's what your God is after. Not just external conformity, but He wants your words and your thoughts and all your affections for Him, our desires. Because the fact is, we can be in a place of worship But what is our desire? The fact is we can be married, maybe for many, many years, to one spouse. But what is our desire? We felt in prison maybe this whole time, and oh, if we wish, but we can't. Um, We're single, not engaging in sexual immorality. Yes, but what is your desire within? Now, no doubt we would like to distance ourselves from the murderer on death row and think we're not that bad. But have you not hated, says Jesus? Have you not had anger in your heart, maybe to your wife or your husband or your child or your parent? Anger in there. Never wished someone dead? Well, you would have never said it. Ever thought it? in your heart, never spoken evil of or to someone. You see what Jesus is doing. Uh, The depth and the intensity of his holiness. The reality is God is much more holy than we think. We are much more sinful than we believe. Uh, It reaches right down and into our inmost thoughts and desires. Uh, He wants all of us. Now, what's the takeaway here? Well, uh, that anger in the heart And one careless word deserves judgment. And that should elicit a response like this. Let's hear again from J.C. Ryle. What man or woman upon the earth can ever stand before such a God as this and plead not guilty? Or, yeah, I have kept it all. Who is there, says Ryle, that has ever grown to years of discretion, that is, of understanding, and not broken the commandments thousands of times? The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And then Ryle says this, without a mighty mediator, we should everyone be condemned in the judgment. And here's this, ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel and content themselves with a little formal Christianity. They do not see, says Ryle, the strictness and holiness of God's Ten Commandments. If they did, they would never rest 
till they were safe in Christ. Oh, I love J.C. Ryle. See what he's saying? So Jesus comes and says, these Pharisees don't know what they're talking about. They think God's only uh, concerned about external. I, I penetrate, no, to the heart. Desires and thoughts are to be holy unto the Lord. And we are to see that before this holy God, before his holy law, there is no one righteous, not one. And that should drive us, says Ryle, uh, into the arms of Jesus, the Savior from all our sin. And so God is much more holy than we think, and we are much more sinful than we believe. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us with that, which is, which is, which is important enough, but he also gives us the antidote. The antidote to murder or anger or insults, right, in your heart towards somebody, and sinful speech, uh, we find out, is actually Jesus' call here to peace and to pursue reconciliation. You might remember uh, from, the, uh, from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so, verse 21 and 22, Jesus has said, listen, God's much more holy than you think. You're much more sinful than you believe. So, verse 23, so, or therefore, so Jesus is continuing here on the same theme of the sixth commandment. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you've come to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, Jesus doesn't say that what they have against you is legitimate. He's just saying you come to the altar, you come to the temple, we come to worship, and on your way, you know, you're, you're coming to church, and, and you remember so-and-so, and, and you think um, something's wrong in my relationship with them. Because, you know, last Sunday, um, um, you know, they seem to kind of ignore me at church. Or, you know, I've been calling them, and they don't, they don't respond to my phone calls. Um, i trying to visit them, but they don't seem to want me to come. Um, they, uh, they just seem cold. They look the other way when I pass them here in the aisle at church. And so the next time you come to worship, you remember that. It seems that there's something between you. There's some kind of break, breakdown in that fellowship. Uh, this is what Jesus says, verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. So we're talking here about the sixth commandment. We're talking about murder. We're talking about anger in the heart. We're talking about those things that break the peace in our hearts in our relationships with others. And so Jesus says, therefore, when you go to church and you've got someone on your mind that somehow you are not at peace with, uh, they've got something against you and you know it, go, says Jesus. Pursue reconciliation with them. Now notice what Jesus says. These kind of breaches in relationship must be dealt with even before you continue that act of worship. D.A. Carson said, Men, women too, love to substitute ceremony, that is going through the motions of worship per se, they love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. But Jesus will have none of it. See what he's saying there? He's saying men love to think that, you know, I've got all these broken relationships, I've been sinning against this person, and this, this is all destroyed, or this mar- my marriage has fallen apart, but, but I'm just going to go to church... 
and pretend it doesn't exist, and it's just me and God going to read the Bible, going to pray, going to sing. And even though I know there's all this brokenness around me and my relationships with others, that's not important. I'm just going to come and I'll, go, I'll take the Lord's Supper and everything will be okay. And Jesus says, no, this is, your relationship to others is so important. You leave your gift, you go, you pursue reconciliation, you pursue peace. Your worship cannot be compartmentalized or separated from your relationship to others. Um, we find this everywhere in the scripture that God is concerned with our, with our whole life, not simply that we go through the motions. Jeremiah chapter 7 has a wonderful uh, reminder to us of this. Jeremiah 7 uh, at verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. This is speaking to the people of God. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and said, We're delivered! (laughs) Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And so there Jeremiah is speaking to the people saying, you know, there's all sorts of problems going on in your, uh, in your life that you're not dealing with. You're not going after it. You're not seeking reconciliation or anything like that. And there's, there's sin there. But then on Sunday, you come to church and say, we're delivered. And then do you, do you go right back out, says Jeremiah, into those same uh, sins and same practices, and then come back Sunday, we're delivered. And then, then go back. No, no, no. And Jesus says, listen, if there's a breach in a relationship with a brother, leave your gift at the altar. Go and first pursue peace. That's important because that tells me, I hope it tells you, we don't believe in a Sunday Christ. We don't believe in a limited Christ. He is not simply the Christ of my one or two worship services on the Lord's Day. He's not just Lord on a Sunday. Uh, He is Lord of all my days. And He is the King over all my relationships, over all that I do, the movies I choose. He is Lord. And so if I go to a movie on a Friday or anywhere else, or watch a movie at home, and if I can't say to myself, um, Lord Jesus, what do you think of this film? And if I can't have peace in my heart that the Lord Jesus would say, this is good for you, I shouldn't watch it. Why? Because He's already there. He's already present. It's the Spirit of Christ. If you're a Christian, He's already there. Um, I remember listening to someone once who said, well, if you go to see a film or choose to see a film, if if you can't take your grandmother to see it, why are you watching it? if you're a Christian, because he's Lord over all. And so Jesus says, you first go and, and, and pursue reconciliation with your brother before you come to me. Don't do that. First, apply the gospel uh, in your relationship to your brother. And then in verse 25, 26, Jesus contrasts the way of the the kingdom citizen. He's talking here to Christians. This is how the Christian who's come to Christ, who knows Christ, 
understands the law of God. It penetrates to my thoughts and desires. Uh, It's displeasing to God, anger in the heart. Instead, we're to pursue peace and reconciliation. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So whereas the kingdom citizen, uh, those nine times blessed that Jesus has described earlier in Matthew 5, whereas our concern is, uh, uh, is to pursue peace uh, with our brother, to seek reconciliation, to go and be reconciled, on the other hand, when it comes to what happens uh, typically in the world, well, there, uh, there, there's, there's accusation and there's judgment. And, uh, and there is condemnation. And so Jesus is really here uh, contrasting the way of the peacemaker, who is the Christian, with the way of the accuser, who only wants to condemn and judge. And the Lord says to, to us, if, if that person is coming after you, make terms quickly. That is, that is seek to pursue peace with them, whether it's in the church or here he's talking about in the court or before the court, you are all about reconciliation, whereas uh, others might be all about seeking to accuse and judge. Now, why would that be the heart of the kingdom citizen? Well, perhaps it's because our king himself is called uh, the prince of peace, And perhaps because uh, the King Jesus himself tells us, uh, we're told through Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, what his mission was all about, and he put it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, all this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Why is anger in the heart murder? And why is the antidote to anger and hatred and malice and pride in the heart uh, peace and pursuing reconciliation? Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, being sent by the Father, came, the Bible says, on a mission of reconciliation, that is to reconcile you as a sinner, me as a sinner, to the holy God. And then he's given you and me, all the apostles, but the church itself, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's why it's so important, says Jesus, leave your gift there, go and be reconciled. On the other hand, Jesus says there are going to be those who come after you to accuse you And what they're after is, in the end, that um, you're going to be put in prison and you'll never get out. Who does that remind you of? Well, Revelation 12, of course, when it speaks about Satan, it speaks about that old serpent, the devil, uh, the accuser of the brethren. Right, Night and day, accuses us, accuses us. Uh, Satan's not looking to reconcile anybody. He's just looking to judge and to condemn, and, and he goes after us, and he goes after us, and he goes after us. 
Jesus gives a wonderful example of this contrast between the kingdom citizen, all about pursuing reconciliation, uh, getting it done quickly, and, and those who accuse and seek to just condemn and judge in that parable in Matthew 18, where he talks about the, uh, the, the, the master who forgives his servant this, this huge amount out of, out of pity for the servant. He could throw that servant into jail along with all his family, remember, until he pays every penny. But instead, uh, the master says, no, uh, I forgive you this whole debt. And then that servant goes out, remember, throttles his servant who owes him a pittance and ends up throwing that man and his family into prison until he gets the last penny. God is the former, you see. God is the one who in Christ reconciles us to himself. And because your God is a God who reconciles us to himself, the Bible says kingdom citizens pursue reconciliation and peace. They are peacemakers. They are not peace breakers filled with anger, hatred, malice towards one another. And friends, simply to end, note this is such an urgent matter. Jesus tells us it requires immediate action, right? This pursuit, even in, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 25, he says, uh, come to terms quickly. Don't let this go on. Um, be reconciled, uh, go, uh, and then come to worship me. It must be dealt with now, says Jesus. This is such an important truth. And of course, because God himself is the great reconciler of men. Let me close with this from John Stott. Yet he says, how seldom, how seldom do we heed Christ's call for immediacy of action? If murder is a horrible crime... Malicious anger and insult are horrible too, and so is every deed, word, look, or thought by which we hurt or offend a fellow human being. We need, says Stott, to be more sensitive about these evils. We must never allow an estrangement to remain, according to Jesus, still less to let it grow. We must not delay to put it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger, but immediately... As soon as we're conscious, Jesus is saying, of a broken relationship, we must take the initiative to mend it, to apologize for the grievance we've caused, to pay the debt we've left unpaid, to make amends. And these extremely practical instructions, as thought, Jesus drew out from the sixth commandment as its logical implication. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible step to live in peace and love with all men. See, that's how, again how the commandments always have a, a negative and a positive side. Do not murder, no anger in the heart. Instead, says Jesus, that heart that knows Jesus is full of a desire to pursue peace and to reconcile with one another. Never do we read in the Bible, time heals all wounds. Did you know that? That doesn't come from the Bible. Why don't we read that? Because... Uh, our wounds are infected by sin. No doctor would ever say to you, I see you have an infection in that wound. Just give it time. Yeah, give it time. Give it time, it spreads. Then eventually, I die from it. Root of bitterness, root of anger grows up. And, 
I may not actually physically put someone to death, but I'd like to. That, says Jesus, that anger within, that needs to be put to death by the work of God. Yes, a properly bandaged wound, a wound that has been dressed, (laughs) that will heal in time. But first, right, that wound has to be uh, addressed, you see. And that's what Jesus is saying. The antidote to anger in the heart is the pursuit of peace. Why is this all important? Well, because, friends, this then is the heart. This is the heart of the Savior, you see. He is not after your simple external obedience, my simple external conformity to some kind of standard. Because if he was, I might convince myself that I could live up to that standard. But if God says, no, actually, um, I, am, I am holy and I have come that you would be holy in all your actions, in all your thoughts, and in all your desires, then before such a God, as Jesus explains the law of God to me, I, 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 I find myself by the Spirit to be convicted that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And thanks be to God that that's exactly why Jesus the King has come. That's why he's explaining to us what the holiness of his Father is all about, so that we, like the folks who first heard this Sermon on the Mount, would recognize that there's no one righteous, no, not one, but there is a Savior whose name is Jesus, and we would go and find safety in him. May that be true of us tonight. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we, uh, by your Spirit, think on these things, to have the Lord Jesus himself expound to us, uh, preach to us what the holy law of our God is all about. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, tonight for the conviction of your Holy Spirit that we would see our Father in all his splendor and all his majesty. And that we would be, as Christians, thankful as those who have run to the Savior, who have found forgiveness and cleansing for all our sin, to know that we serve a God who does know us, uh, body and soul, heart, mind, and thoughts, and that you are transforming those desires and those thoughts, those words, and all our life into conformity to the image of your Son. Oh, thank you, dear God, for that glorious work of salvation. And Lord, tonight, if we, if we think somehow you've only ever been concerned about this external conformity, oh Lord, put that to rest in our hearts tonight. That you want our heart. You want all of us. Not simply our obedience. You want our love. You want all our affections for you because we've seen your affection and love for us in the sending of your Son, that we, sinners though we are, might be reconciled to God. Thank you, dear God, for your salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.